God, dig that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, repeat after me. Sabrina's Dirty Deeds. <laughs> yeah. Oh, g'day, Sab. Well, hello there, Jamie. How are you, my friend? Yeah, doing well. I, um, I've, I've kind of moved away from last week's shame. You know, I had the, uh, the fake plant in the office. Yeah, so I thought I'd take it outside this time, Sab, oh. among things that are, that are real. I can see a tree in the background. Yes, that's um, that's a frangipani that a friend gave us. He kind of pretended it was a gift, but essentially he was um, uh, knocking down a house and he hadn't taken very good care of this and was going to throw it in the bin. So I took it and uh, right. kind of brought it back. It's doing all right. Well, some of the best things to throw out, aren't they? Like um, I'm presuming that 1950s swing chair that you're in at the moment uh, I reckon someone would have thrown that out, Jamie. Yeah, there's a bit of a trend here. I'm kind of <laughs> looking like a bit of a tight ass, to be honest. Um, this, this is a hand-me-down uh, from my wife's parents, actually. Yeah. So they, they were going to get rid of it. And I thought, hang on, chuck this outside, a few meetings out here, a few, <laughs> few Skype calls, happy days. I like it. I like it. But they, they've had it for a long time. There is a 60s vibe. Every time I sit in it, I'm quite concerned about, what's happened in it in decades gone by, considering it's come from <laughs> my wife's parents. <laughs> Is that too far? Well, back in the 50s, you know, people were pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't want to think about it. Um, they definitely have that streak to them too. Um, she's, a, she's, a, she's a listener too, my wife's uh, mum, so yeah. she'll probably oh. just text me an answer when she listens whenever that is. <laughs> You're going to be in strike, mate. Or yeah. either that, or they may go into a full description for you. Yeah, let's hope not. Um, <laughs> as long as there's no diagrams, fixed messages will be okay. Um, hey, Sab, let's move along quickly. Um, this episode is uh, brought to us by our good mates at the uh, the Kalamanda Plant Company, some people that you're pretty familiar with. Yeah, because um, Andrew uh, grows everything organically so he grows all the edible food including medicinal stuff and herbs so there's no pesticides no herbicides no fungicides um so when you buy those little plants and put them in your own garden you know they're safe to eat for a start um but also he's he's growing some of the wonderful old perennials that you can't get anywhere else uh so he grows a lot of well i like to call the nana plants um for for people that want something a bit different you can't get in nursery so a lot of those old perennials are fantastic for bees and butterflies and to bring beneficials in and of course andrew the calamunda plant company uh they do the calamunda um garden festival where they bring in growers from all over wa well not this month but uh, next month they're going to do it online so that people can still see all the produce that's made up in the hills, local growers, and buy their stuff, you know, straight from the from WA. So yeah, beauty. They're a, well, they're a mob. They're yeah, a good you can um, check them out as well at calamundaplants.com.au. Andrew, very good bloke, former police yeah. officer. Don't believe the rumours. He never arrested me. Okay, <laughs> I know that's. Oh, that's swirling around, but it's not true. Hey, um, I hope he Sab. never Jess. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, he might have. <laughs> um, hey, Sab, I can't help but notice you got a bait with you today. 
because I'm staring yeah. right at him. That's right. Not often I have young, handsome men sitting on my back veranda, Jamie, but um, I've got I've got the marvellous Josh Byrne here who's been a good mate of mine for a long time, so a very avid gardener. Um, and so I've invited him to join us on our podcast so we can talk about stuff that's green you know, on many different levels, Josh. So welcome. Good on you, Sab. Hi, Jamie. <laughs> good to be with you. Yeah, great to see. You. I've got to say, the best, the best hair in gardening, clearly. <laughs> well, you know, because we're all in lockdown at the moment, and something that we've taken quite seriously, uh, including uh, this appropriately socially distanced Distance, interview yes. that I'm having with uh, yourself via the internet and and Sab 1.5 meters mm. to my right. Um, I vowed not to have a haircut until this lockdown lifts. Uh, yeah, which started as a bit of a joke, but now it's getting pretty wild and woolly. It's getting serious. Uh, particularly because I'm still filming for Gardening Australia, albeit in my backyard with the camera a good couple of metres away. Uh, but um, the crew think it's hilarious because uh, by the time I finish potting things up and, and pruning things back and all the things we do on the show and cracking a sweat, I've got a pretty good afro by the end of it. <laughs> But, uh, anyway, it takes me back to my back to my teens where I still uh, wear the fro with pride. I think it's I think it's working for you. Good. Reckon, Jamie. Yeah, could, yeah. Uh, you could make a do, like you'd have little nests and bits of yeah. twigs. And... Well, when we um when we film normally, um not within the sort of COVID nineteen you know restrictions. Yeah. Uh, the audio operators put the microphone uh, in my hair. Oh, all right. right. So it's kind of up out of the way because when it's on my shirt and I'm doing practical stories at Russell's. Yeah, Russell's. Because I wear such cheap clothing, right? <laughs> so but uh, so they, they put it in my hair and it actually acts like a, a natural fluffy. <laughs> so f for those outside the industry, a fluffy is a nickname for the fluffy thing that goes on the end of the microphone. So they just like, clip it in it's there. It's inbuilt. Uh, but because of the COVID-19 restrictions, um, they can't, the audio guys have been instructed not to touch me. <laughs> Right? So, so everything's boom mic'd. Oh, yeah. yeah everything's course, boom mic'd. Yeah. It was massive boom. So, uh, but normally, so by the time we all get back to normal, uh, there'll be no problems hiding <laughs> multiple microphones in this massive fluffy on top of my head. I absolutely love that. Hey, Josh, you're saying that you're obviously filming um, a lot of stuff in your own backyard because of yeah. the restrictions. Have you, have you, I don't know, uncovered or discovered some some new stuff that you you might have had tucked away or had some new ideas about what you're doing at your place kind of during this period? Oh, mate, no, it's more that my backyard is looking so good at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting all these things done that, um, you know, that normally you hit the weekend, you go, oh, I really should get onto that. But now that we, we need to keep finding good, interesting projects to do, I'm, I'm getting through them. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I did stop myself and, and thought that I was getting a bit of a, uh, a look into my future self in retirement uh, was when, you know, middle of a, of a wall, was on my nursery. Uh, in the middle of the day, something, of course, I've never done in the five years since installing it. Uh, but I'm running a, a pretty tight ship at the moment, Jamie. Like, you know, most things are in order and uh, I feel like I'm on top of things seasonally and, and uh, yeah, no, having having a lot of fun, actually. I, I was thinking, though, because uh, I look at all the crap that's around my garden, thinking if people were filming in here sort of on a regular basis, I'd have to clean stuff up, which is, you know... 
like constantly. Yeah, well, it's 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 one of those things because I do film at home regularly. Like uh, every two or three weeks, we'll do a we'll do a you know shoot day at my place, and um, it's just at the moment because we can only shoot at home rather than out and about at other people's places. Uh, we're doing you know kind of double the amount of shoots at home. So, um, but because the crew are regularly coming around. Um, organized most of the time mm. and you know i've got parts of the garden that are allowed to be kind of wild and messy and that's yep. that's kind of the habitat spaces and and it is what it is yeah there's yeah. order yeah. in 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 that mayhem yeah um, <laughs> is how i like to put it uh it might not be neat but there's order there's a natural yeah, yeah, order yeah. to it so that's good enough for me yeah, anyway. yeah, I have um, and then but there are other parts that you know that the veggie garden and and things like that that are normally in pretty good nick but um you know what it what it does and because i've been you know, filming my own gardens uh, on the show for, for nearly 20 years now. Oh, my God. Um, and, of course, that's involved, what, four or five gardens over yes. the years, yeah, moving yeah, from, that's from right. house to house and, yeah. and typically renting a place and then fixing it up and then getting booted out and having to go to the next one. <laughs> uh, but uh, but thankfully, this one's finally are, so we're staying put for a while. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think um, getting the garden ready or having it ready to shoot TV uh, over – you know, over 20 years, which is, you know, I've been, how I'm 45 this year. I started gardening when I was 14. So I've been gardening on telly for longer, well, for, for, for the largest chunk, if you like, of, 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 my, life. of my gardening life. Yeah. Not gardening on telly, yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So um, I think it's influenced the way I garden. <laughs> that sounds terribly superficial. But really, it's about planning and getting organised. So yeah. there are parts of the garden that I can let go to pot. Because yep. I know I'm not going to be shooting there for a while. Yeah. And there are other areas that I naturally put my attention to, but it all works out. So it, it is interesting because you actually started off basically in a veggie patch, didn't you? I did. Many, many, many years I ago. Did. And so... I'm, I'm still in a veggie patch, which yes. makes, makes me think <laughs> I haven't progressed very far. <laughs> It's my calling, clearly. It's just now that you're paid to do it rather yeah, than yeah, do it yeah. just for love. Somewhat, yeah. <laughs> it is the yeah, ABC. Yeah, no, I love it. I, 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 you know, for me, um, in, in all serious now, uh, gardening, um, you know, for as long as I can remember since I started, you know, taking a, a hobby seriously as a teenager, gardening's been, been my thing. Um, and uh, it, it still is. So mm. people often say, you know, do you still enjoy it? I mean, what do you mean? It, it mm. is for me. Um, it's about the gardening. Yeah. That's what I'd be doing anyway. Yeah. That's what I love doing. Uh, the fact that you know I'm also fortunate to be able to you know tell some stories and share and and film that gardening as well as a bonus. Mm. That's a layer on top. Yeah. Uh, but with or without the cameras, that's what I'd be doing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, and it and it brings me uh, great joy. You're not just a, he's not just a pinup boy. No, well, I would have lost my job a long time ago if that was the case. And that's what I often like to say to people. Like, one thing you can be you can be sure of with Gardening Australia mm. is that the presenters are all serious and real gardeners. Oh yeah. Uh, mm. Because if we were just there for um, your good you know, looks. The, the presenter good looks, we all would have been moved on some time ago. So yeah, uh, that, they're a great. Bunch. You might be being a little harsh on yourself there. I still think there's a bit no, of pin-up well, in you, Josh. Um, I, I see a lot of sun, Jane, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the tan is working. Hey, um, it's, it's kind of, we've had a bit more time, haven't we? Most of us really, in a way, and, and probably can reflect a little bit. But, you know, you're talking about, you know, really getting into it when you were 14. Do, do you remember back then what it was that kind of really drew you to the, the garden and the backyard and the, the veggie patch? Uh, I 
remember exactly what it was. And I'll give you a very quick kind of progression of a couple of steps. First thing was my dad, um, who I was living with when I was 14, uh, this dad and I, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Subiaco, uh, dad, uh, who was a lawyer by profession, but a very, uh, keen amateur cook yeah. and a very keen, um, book collector. Right. So those two things made a big impact. And just very quickly, with his cooking, he always had a very serious herb connection. Right. And I'm talking old school, one herb per single terracotta pot uh, lined up on the old sort of tiered timber oh, framed yeah, yeah, yeah. rack. Yep. Uh, and he had all of the, the common and some of the less conventional culinary herbs. So, um, and we always had fresh herbs in our meals, but... One of my chores, if you like, um, along with doing the washing and the dishes and everything else, was to make sure all of those herbs were in good condition. Ah, okay. So this involved um, doing the fertilising, uh, doing uh, the repotting. So I learnt how to do cuttings, how to do division, repotting. And this is going back when we were do, having a, a repotting session and, and Dad had joined me and, and I think looking back on it, it's probably that time with a parent that I actually mm. enjoyed. Mm. Um, <laughs> when we used to repot these things, Dad would say, now you, you've got to put crock in the bottom of the pot. <laughs> And for younger gardeners amongst us who would have no idea what, what croc is. Yeah. Uh, That'll be the dog. The, the, Carry uh, on. Yeah. So croc is basically broken up pottery and other material that uh, is one of those old myths that you put in the bottom of the pot to make sure you get good drainage, which may have been the case before we had decent structural potting mixes, but yes, they're not needed anymore. Right. So, But we'd always, you know, put the broken pots in the bottom and fill them yep. up and all the yep. rest of it. So so that was great, learning how to grow those those herbs. Um, the hounds are alive and well at Sabrina's house. Yeah. I'll just check the hound, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Carry on yeah. It's, uh, it's, I will do. It's great to be shooting this in real life on the back deck in suburbia. Uh, so the, <laughs> Who needs the comforts the, of studios? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. It's a beautiful view, though, out onto Sabrina's garden. But um, yeah. so, so the next thing from there is um, uh, Dad could see that I had an interest in, in gardening and uh, he, he gave me a book. Um, called No Dig Gardening by Esther Deeks. Oh, Esther Yes. Oh, yeah, it was yes. the first edition copy that he bought back in the 70s. When wow. It was and so I read it cover to cover. I was fascinated by this idea that you could, you know, basically get layers of straw and grass mm. clippings and manure and, and, and make a thriving veggie patch. So yeah. uh, Dad took me down to um, the nursery and to the hardware store, as it was back then. Uh, this would have been in um, sort of uh, mid to late uh, 80s. Uh, and um, went down and got these materials, and I set up a, a, um, a four-square-metre no-dig veggie patch Yep. and planted it up with some cucurbit seeds and some tomato seedlings, and it just went nuts. And something just clicked, and I thought, this is incredible how this batch of materials uh, and some seeds and seedlings can produce this food. So over the next few months, um, I kind of expanded it and you know started planting up passion fruits and bits and pieces and took over at the back half of the, the old family uh, home in, in Subi. The next important thing happened. Dad was observing this. Yeah. And the next um, books he gave me, again, out of his dusty collection, uh, were um, the first and second volumes of the original permaculture texts. Permaculture ah, 1 by Bill, by Bill Mollison and David yeah. Holmgren and Permaculture 2, which was just by, by Bill. Uh, and again, first edition copies that came out um, in in the mid to late seventies, 
Uh, and as it turns out, Dad had been, it was very strange for me to get in these books from Dad. Uh, you know, and interestingly, the rest of his book fascination is around um, Dr. Johnson. Right, oh, so really? it's a it's a very different you know, yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah, you know subject, and he's got these mm. sort of hippie gardening books to one side, um, but he was very interested in what was happening in the return to land movement okay. and alternative uh, agriculture at the time as kind of a side hobby. So I got these permaculture books, and read them cover to cover. At this stage, I would have been in year nine, year ten, uh, and I I remember reading it, um, and particularly permaculture one as a kind of a an environmental design manual, if you like. Mm. Uh, which was really about um, seeing um, how things can be um, reassembled and designed um, in human settlements, so whether it be um, cities or suburbs or, 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 or towns, the integration of agriculture, uh, buildings and essential infrastructure in a way where things just work better. Yep. And I remember having a seminal moment, and this sounds pretty deep for a 14-year-old, uh, thinking... Uh, you know, I was there, I was living in Subiaco in a very comfortable home in quite an affluent area, uh, going to a private school and looking around at all these neat manicured gardens, uh, enormous resource expenditure in terms of water and, and imported nutrients because we're gardening on an infertile coastal plain and not a food plant in sight other than our backyard. Um, and, and I thought, yeah, we need to be doing this much better. Mm. So that ended up influencing my subject choice in high school i studied biology and um uh, and and geography and and of course started gardening more seriously and that led me into studying environmental science and yeah. and it all took off from there but it all started from a four square meter no dig veggie patch in Subiaco. and i think that's um i think that's the the thing that the so a similar thing with me in my grandmother's garden was that whole thing of you, you know, when you're a kid, you see something totally magical in having a seed that big and then that tiny seed grows a tree and you just think, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, you know, now that people are spending a bit more time at home because the nurseries are just flat out with seedlings and veggies and you know, front verges are being done because people are, they're at home more. But do you think that this will change people's attitude to green space or their, or how they utilise their outdoor space? Or do you think once people go back to to normal sort of day-to-day -day routine, it'll sort of go out the window again? I would like to think um, one of the positive outcomes of, the COVID-19 lockdown is, is people reassessing um, the space around them mm. uh, and how fortunate we are in places like Perth, for most of us having at least some space around us, mm. particularly compared to some of the high-density cities around the world, which must be a nightmare yeah. to be in lockdown in places like that. Um, and, you know, if you if you look at um, the activity that garden centres have seen, I mean, it's almost been panic buying of seedlings. <laughs> it's uh, almost I, I like... Toilet paper. Yeah, I, I am curious as to how many of those seedlings have survived. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, but people actually reconnecting with um, the uh, the green space around them. Uh, um, certain, uh, you see more people out and about walking dogs and 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 and, and being outside yep. you know, within the social distancing requirements. Uh, and and I that coupled with people working from home. Yep. Uh, and of course, a lot of people finally coming to terms with what is now a well-established technology to enable us to work from to home work with from video home. platforms yeah. and when we're doing this podcast yeah. via that means now. 
you would you would hope that this kind of shock to the system, if you like, as, as kind of a working system, makes people think there are real lifestyle and personal health and social benefits from just reconnecting with that space around you, and gardens are central to that. So um, you can't see it at the moment, Jamie, because you're on the, the uh, 50s swing there. Um, <laughs> so I've had, I've had moths that are laying eggs that have turned to throughout the garden. And there's been a family of magpies that come down every afternoon about this time and they actually pluck the, <laughs> they pluck the caterpillars out of the ground. Um, and I'm just thinking how, you know, if people are spending more time outdoors, then hopefully they understand that we're in a shared space. So... Um, and that's one of the main reasons why I don't use pesticides or insecticides because I can be a really lazy gardener and just watch everything else in my garden actually look after all the pests that are here. So I haven't, I don't need to use anything, but um, but it's that it's that connectivity I think for people that it's not just about your space, is it? It's actually sharing that space with other organisms and as you say hopefully by people having a chance to um to be at home a bit more uh, and uh not to feel obliged to spend that time they've got at home which would normally only be on the weekends mm. uh, during the day that is uh you know filling it with busy stuff yeah uh, and of course weekends are busy by the yeah, time you've done are. your jobs yeah. and the kids sport and bits and pieces and, and had your nap <laughs> big, big, big fan of the saturday nap um, and the Sunday nap too, for that matter. Um, by the time Don't forget about home, the Saturday-Sunday beer. Yep. Yeah, that's, yeah. There's, there's not a lot of time left. But, I mean, sitting here on your back deck, Sabrina, and looking out, this is a beautiful example of suburban biodiversity in action. Mm. As we, magpies flying overhead, they've obviously had a gut full of uh, yeah, caterpillars. They're, yeah, they're full. It. But the water feature bringing birds in. You can hear honey eaters, uh, you know, multiple layers of canopy from trees and mid-story and ground cover. You know, despite Sab saying that she's a messy gardener, the garden looks amazing because there's structure there yeah. and it's filled with incredible plants. Um, so, you know, this you're right, this is shared space. Mm. Uh, and all this is going on all around us. But if we're so busy, we don't get to see that. And if we don't see it and we don't enjoy it, it's it, it's unlikely to influence people's behaviour around their gardening practices, mm. including what products they choose or choose not yep. to use, yep. how they garden in a safe way that is not only better for them and their health, but to make sure that you have this thriving biodiversity around us, which ultimately does aid us in, in yeah. gardening with pest control, yeah. with disease management, with resilience in our, in our urban um, landscape. So, um, I mean, you've been into this for a long time. and, 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 it, and I'm even and it older. Than, than, I'm even older than you. Yeah. My God. Yeah, yeah, and I don't yeah. even have I'm a Saturday up, and a Sunday yeah. nap. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. should. <laughs> do, do your wonders. I'm actually 65. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Hey, um, you know, you were talking about being a kid in Subi and, and looking around and it was really only your place that uh, had something growing that you could, you could eat. Um, and, and talking about gardens that obviously took a lot of water and, um, you know, weren't suited to these conditions. How far along do you think we are now in terms of people kind of um, the worm turning on that kind of view and, yeah. and, and using their gardens for, for maybe what they should be. Sure. Look, I think there's been um, 
been a lot of progress in this space. And I, I should point out, of course, Subiaco and Shetton Park and where we lived in Redfern Street was was um, was right on the edge. So it was, we're in Subiaco, but I spent a lot of my my teenage years mucking about with mates down into Shetton Park as well. And and that whole area, of course, originally was very working class. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there and were, had lakes. And, and, and had, or had, had, um, had, had wetlands that then, yeah. be, then were termed swamps. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, thankfully, and then they'd be called lakes and hopefully we call them wetlands again, which is mm. what they are. But, mm. um, but they are managed as lakes, lots of them, as you say. Um, but the, uh, uh, th- there was a lot of food production in those suburbs um, when, um, when they were first established and, because, and a lot of fruit trees. Uh, and there were, when I said there, were, there was not food growing in other people's gardens, that wasn't completely true. There were, there were, there were leftover fruit trees. But when we were there, and th- at that period of time, there was a there was a big gentrification happening. The old homes being fixed up. You know, the first of the subdivisions beginning to happen. Um, a lot of high end landscapes and gardens going in. So I could see the resource spend in the urban environment that wasn't necessarily linked to better environmental outcomes, whether that be in the built format and the landscape. Mm. So. Um, but you know, fast forward there, um, you know, I, th- I don't think anyone could deny um, one of the biggest trends we've seen in gardening, uh, and this probably started, in fairness, you know, ten to twelve years ago, but still continues, is an interest in um, in food production, uh, an interest in organic gardening, mm. uh, and the challenge for us. Uh, is, uh, I, th- I think um, it's, it's kept alive by itself. It wasn't one of these trends like, you oh, know, yeah, like, yeah. like, like, the, like the no maintenance outdoor room yeah, yeah, yeah. thing went. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it's one of those things that has persisted because it's got substance. But I think that the challenge for us that work in, in the gardening industry and really believe in the benefits of, of food production and sustainable gardening is that how do we continue to provide people who clearly want to engage with this with the right information um, to uh, enable them to have the success to keep going. Yeah, yeah. I think there's no doubt people have been inspired yep. to try growing food, or my mates have, some with better success than others. Um, you know, viewers of the show and, and other feedback we get, um, how do we make sure that they um, have the skills uh, to garden with success and garden in a way that's not commodity gardening? Yes. And, and by that, um, I mean, we've got trees and garden is because because that's important and, that, and that's how we get access to plants and and, and, and an amazing you know um, capacity and knowledge out there in the industry yeah. but you don't need to go and spend a heap of money yeah absolutely to garden in a way that brings you a lot of joy mm. and can provide you some food and, and other benefits uh, and um, and I think that's the big challenge for us how, yeah. how do we make sure that people get the information they need to feel confident with gardening uh, and not see it as a hobby they have to go down and try and spend a whole lot of money buy stuff particularly if it's wasted and then and feel and, disheartened. And it dies and then they go so, well I'll just concrete yeah, it. Yeah. But, but it's, it's definitely more than a thing I think yeah. it, I think it's here to stay. Well I've I've noticed a massive trend like in the in the 1980s you know people were still putting in English cottage gardens um, and you rarely see that sort of thing now it's particularly true. on the within Perth because it's just not sustainable. Um, but you know, in saying that, I love begonias, they're yeah. my thing, so I grow them in a pot because they have to be watered a lot more than what all a bank my banksias do. So, so there are those, but but you're also, I want you to talk a little bit about 
your involvement in in developing sort of not just sustainable buildings but that whole I suppose it's almost like a permaculture thing you're looking at the sustainability outside and also inside on mm. building yeah. a house yeah. that's more sustainable so yeah. can you can you talk a little bit about what you do there sure in that, sure in that sure so um People are probably most familiar with my work on Gardening Australia. Obviously, yep. they see yep. me see me in the garden or uh, visiting other people's gardens. Um, my background, um, whilst I have horticultural qualifications and have been a, a gardener for for many years, as I mentioned, um, I studied environmental science, mainly led by an interest in wanting to understand how to garden better. Yeah. But but realizing that gardening is actually it's a it's 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 a practical process of kind of environmental design and understanding connections. Uh, but I, I went on in my postgrad studies um, in my honours and my PhD. I, I, I got more and more involved and interested in understanding urban water management. Again, driven by an understanding of how we can hydrate landscapes in dry climates. But uh, that made a pretty clear connection with buildings. I did a lot of work in recycled water schemes and understanding opportunities for water harvesting. That then led to an interest in buildings and mm. renewable energy and mm. climate-sensitive design. Yep. So um, whilst it might seem like a tangent, it's not. These are all um, all connected in, in terms of looking at things and understanding how to, how to assemble the components and reconfigure things and design systems in a way where there's less waste, where there's better optimization uh, and things just work better. Yep. So um, over uh, the last or probably 15 odd years since I first set up my consulting practice, which started uh, mainly in landscape design, yep. uh, soon moved into sort of um, uh, urban water management consulting as well. And then um, probably five or, or seven years ago in, in quite a serious way, we moved into um, sort of built environment consultancy and design as well. So. Um, my practice um, now has, uh, we've got 13 people across the Fremantle office and an office in Melbourne, and we work in the urban design uh, and landscape architectural space. But the approach we take is very much around um, integration of landscape, urban water and built environment to look at, um, at, at sort of sustainable urban systems. We do civic space projects like parks and streetscapes, we do urban developments, uh, and um, and really the magic happens when you bring all those things together. Mm. Uh, so um, it's a great in space to work in, uh, you know, and particularly when we start looking at, at urban infill, and that's that's the space that where we particularly focus. Yeah. Uh, I'm not really interested in the in the greenfields, yeah, suburban yeah. expansion stuff. That's fundamentally flawed from a from a planning perspective, and you know, really we have to consolidate, um, and but do that infill well. And that's that's one of the major problems I find is that, you know, the suburb I live in is a traditional quarter acre block, which is what I sit on. Um, I, you know, that whole urban infill and we have to have it. I mean, mm. the urban sprawl is ridiculous and yeah. it just takes yeah. up so many resources yeah. Yeah. and it's not sustainable. But, but... <sighs> The thing is, in a, in a private block of land, people can take every single green living thing out and fit as many buildings in that space as possible. How do you think that we can actually change the, I guess, the boundaries on, on the hard build compared to the allocation of 
green space around yeah. the hard bills? Sure. So uh, it's a challenge that um, cities all around Australia are facing. All of the Australian capital cities and, and most of the larger regional um, cities uh, all have quite ambitious infill targets. Here in WA, it's just under 50% infill target. Uh, and, and the reason for that is to, um, to be able to consolidate around public transport, uh, to make infrastructure service delivery more effective because the taxpayer is paying for constant expansion of mm. water and, mm. and, and energy infrastructure otherwise. Uh, and the reality is the living environments that have been created largely on the urban fringe uh, are places that say three by two homes which is in better commas traditionally seen as the great Australian dream, but there's no garden around it. Mm. Uh, to some extent, the better quality developments offset that with high quality public space, but essentially you've got um, low density, sprawling suburbs, totally unproductive, high energy and water use costs, uh, and you're imposing on people who can often least afford it massive transport costs mm. to get to employment, huge amount of time impost on top of their working lives, and that's time. So, so really, it's an environmental and social failure of the system. Yeah, definitely. So, so the idea of bringing these populations back in closer towards the city centres and on transport nodes in particular, and then also within some of the um, inner urban and what we call the the middle ring suburbs. And this is where the this is where a lot of the controversy and concern is is, is basically poorly planned and poorly managed development in that in that inner urban and, and inner suburban ring, where you see these lovely uh, you know, traditional uh, quarter-acre uh, lots like what we are here in Willoughby or where I am down in Hilton, um, uh, what they call greyfields. It's often these sort of these sort of inner suburban ring um, where uh, coming in and doing, you know, insensitive battle axe or, or, or kind of uh, triplex subdivision, uh, building conventional housing mm. means almost complete annihilation of the green space within the, what we call private green space, you know, garden yes. space, yes. including established trees. And we've seen uh, enormous loss of tree canopy uh, as, a, as a result, uh, increase in urban heat issues, uh, and interestingly, not a particularly strong increase in, in um, population, population numbers either, yeah. because at the same time we've got this demographic trend of you know, back in the day, back in in the fifties and sixties, these quarter acre blocks had a family, you know, typically Seven. two parents yeah. and a and bunch of kids. Yeah. And now we have new houses, roughly the same size, sometimes bigger than the old ones, with no space yeah. around it, but you know, with one or two people or maybe one kid. So and, and the kids actually being inside yeah. the house. Can you imagine anything worse, yeah. Jamie? So so solutions <laughs> you want? How do we get around this? Mm. Um, well. There's a, there's a couple of things. Um, firstly, um, uh, better planning guidance, and and I, I, I'm I'm pleased to see that here in WA we've got some very good planning guidance that's been uh, in development for some time, but we're beginning to see uh, around precinct approaches to um, uh, to to redesigning and allowing um, uh, development. Uh, we're also seeing much better guidance on. Um, uh, uh, again, through through um, uh, planning guides on multi-residential living, uh, that is, how do we do apartments better? And ultimately, what we need is better housing diversity. Mm. Okay, so one model of housing doesn't fit all. Uh, we have a population that's highly diverse and highly varied, um, and some people are very comfortable with apartment living if apartment living is good. 
And that means not only the building's good and comfortable with good amenity, but they need to be close to public transport, which means people don't need a car. Mm. That becomes very attractive financially. Uh, close to, when I say amenity, close to green space, parks, uh, close to shopping, um, uh, close to work opportunities. And so naturally what you see is people aspiring at a certain point in their life, often young people mm. or people who are downsizing, that works really well. And that takes the pressure of having to do dumb infill yeah. We're delivering the same old bog standard, yeah. one size fits all. Uh, and then the other thing we have to do is when we do do infill in these um, in these more traditional um, established suburb areas, is um, is uh, making sure that there is design excellence expected of the development industry. Yes. Uh, and there are some mechanisms in place that um, councils are now taking on board, which is around design review panels. Uh, and um, one of the challenges, though, is that sometimes local councils might be quite um, clear on what they'd like to see, but uh, some, um, I guess, uh, lack of clear interface between local and then state planning state guidelines planning. means mm. that, that that often stuff slips through. Mm. Um, so what we're beginning to see now is some really good examples of what we call medium density mixed typology developments. And, and I'll point to the case of... Um, WGV in Waikam Valley yep. by Development WA, the State Development Agency. There's a project there. It's on an old school site. So fortunately, there was that good land assembly. There was a yep. decent piece of land. It's two hectares. Um, within a classic um, low-density suburban Waikam Valley post-World yep. War II suburb. Yep, yep. Um, and in that space, there's a combination of apartments, um, group houses, um, conventional houses, uh, and a big focus on high quality public realm. So this includes a you know, public open spaces in the form of a pocket park, but also how the streetscapes have been designed to present as green space. Yeah. So it's within the road reserve, but also incorporates street furniture. Uh, the road alignments are done to make sure existing trees are retained. Yeah. Um, there's um, uh, a, a program that provides um, trees to be planted into, um, into the lots uh, there's a requirement for all lots to have a deep root zone set aside for this tree. For particular uh, some of the um, legacy stormwater assets, in particular a large sump in the corner of the site, has been restored into publicly accessible green space. Yep. So all these things layer up. And, and what, it, what it's needed is a combination of good planning, good design, creativity around how space is used and see um, around 80 dwellings in that site where there would have been around 30 or 40 otherwise. So yep. double the density, in fact, yep. slightly more than that. Yep. Um, but um, still um, uh, an enormous amount of open space that is really a combination of public open space, um, uh, less traditional green space like streetscapes yeah, yeah, yeah. and verges yeah. and, and, and yeah. retrofitted drains, yep. Yep. Uh, stormwater drains, but also very clever design guidelines that require a consideration of how people's courtyards and small private space areas interface with that public domain yep. so it feels like there is a sense of greenery there is real habitat value and they're nice places to live but the density's there yep uh, and we need more examples like that that demonstrate that density isn't an evil thing if done well mm. and we need to expect a lot more of what's being delivered at the moment well said. josh yeah i think what we might do josh um, there's plenty more we want to talk to you about particularly around 
um, sustainability, urban infill, um, and what people can kind of do in their own patch as well. So I reckon what we might do, we might pause for this and split this over a couple of episodes. What do you reckon? Yeah. Well, that's well, that's fine with me. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. Let's play pause here. All right. Let's play pause here, and um, we'll come back with Josh Byrne next week. Thank <laughs> you.